Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The Gilded Age, the stretch of time following the American Civil War, a period of immense change, of glimmering innovations and endless possibilities. At least, that's what most people think it meant. But it was actually a satirical term coined by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner. In their novel, by the same name, the co-writers shined a light on the greed and corruption of the times. You see, underneath all that 24-karat gold sparkle was an era that was rotten to the core. That's because there was a new breed of people on the rise, and they'd do just about anything to strike it rich. I'm talking greedy capitalists, robber barons, and, as we'll see in today's episode, confidence artists. That brings us to the story of Nancy Clem. In a lot of ways, she was a woman of her time. On the outside, she shimmered like any other respectable lady in her town. She was beautiful and charismatic, with the kinds of connections that could open just about any door. But beneath all that charm was a con woman. She endeared herself to countless victims and promised things she knew she could never deliver on. And that didn't just make her notorious, it made her deadly. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we're meeting Nancy Clem. We'll follow her beginnings as the daughter of a celebrated pioneer and track her unexpected career as a financial savant turned con artist. We'll also get to know her business associates and piece together her involvement in a bloody crime no one saw coming. Next week, we'll plunge deeper into the Cold Spring tragedy. We'll explore the investigation, the trials, and discover why our leading lady went down in history as the notorious Mrs. Clem. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
Imagine being the first person to ever send a payment over the internet. New things can be scary, and crypto is no different. It's new, but like the internet, it's also revolutionary. Making your first crypto trade feels easy with 24-7 support when you need it. Go to kraken.com and see what crypto can be. Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc. PVI DBA Kraken. Visit PVI's disclosures at kraken.com slash legal slash disclosures. Nancy Clem was a child of the antebellum. We know that much. But because so much time has passed and because she couldn't write, there's not much documented about her early life. What I can tell you was that she was born around 1833. I can also tell you that her father, John Hartman, was a hardworking farmer. But no matter how long he toiled away on his North Carolina property, he couldn't make the land fertile. So at some point during Nancy's childhood, he packed up and moved his family a few states over to Indiana. There, he went all in on a 140-acre plot of land in Pike Township, a rural community about 15 miles northwest of Indianapolis. And the gamble paid off. Within a few years, John was not only making a comfortable living, he was known as one of central Indiana's most highly respected pioneers. Which might not be saying much, to be perfectly frank, because back in the early 1800s, the population of Pike Township was minuscule. But that only made John even more renowned. Wherever he went, people knew him. And by extension, they also knew his daughter, Nancy. That made her special. Before we continue with the psychology for this episode, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. And we started by looking into what recognition does to a person's brain. Whether or not we want to admit it, we all experience a sort of ego boost when people know who we are, especially when they've not met us before. That's because the effects of fame and recognition aren't so different from when people take mood-enhancing drugs. Whenever we get a hit, say through a nice compliment or even a promotion, our brains get a spike of dopamine. We've discussed in the past that this is the hormone that makes us feel good. But as we all know, too much of a good thing can also be, well, bad for us. In a 2020 Insider report, psychologist Donna Rockwell explained that a constant stream of praise can actually alter our brains. She said... When a person becomes famous, there's so much attention on them that neurologically they forget how to have appropriate and healthy empathy for other people. Too much recognition can also lead to what's known as Acquired Situational Narcissism, or ASN. Psychiatrist Robert Millman first identified ASN through his work with celebrities, and in his experience, people with ASN and classical narcissism both have grandiose fantasies as well as a distorted view of their place in the world. For classical narcissists, these thoughts are often self-contained, meaning the people around them don't necessarily share those same beliefs. But acquired situational narcissists are different again. Not only do they believe that they're better than the rest, the world actually treats them that way. As far as we can tell, the community of Pike Township treated Nancy and her family very differently. Despite being the daughter of a humble farmer, she was deemed a respectable young woman from the start. 
And she didn't have to lift a finger to gain that esteem. Everyone just wanted to be in her orbit. It certainly helped that Nancy was beautiful, so I'm guessing that when she came of age, she had her pick of suitors. But she was also smart. She wasn't just going to marry some average Joe off the street. No, she wanted her future husband to come from a respectable family and have good prospects. She had an image to maintain. In 1849, she found her match in a 20-something named William Patton. He wasn't exactly loaded, but he was a close friend of the family, which meant they were from similar backgrounds, so that was a good start. But what really made him stand out was the fact that he was a skilled plasterer. Today, Patton's field of work might not seem so lucrative, but back in the 19th century, it was a career that was filled with possibilities. That's because at this point in time, the city of Indianapolis was just in its infancy. Men and women were leaving behind the farmlands and flocking to the city for bigger and better opportunities. There was a sudden need for new homes, offices, and buildings, and that created a demand for skilled craftsmen. Patton and Nancy saw this construction boom as a way to level up their small-town life. So soon after the two married, they made their way to Indianapolis. And it seems Patton did fairly well for himself there. He bought a beautiful house in a part of the city teeming with upper-class professionals. We're talking doctors, lawyers, and even a future U.S. president. Now, you might think that a plasterer's wife might have had some trouble fitting in with such a highly esteemed crowd, but that simply wasn't the case for Nancy. Ever the social butterfly, she commanded the respect of everyone who knew her. Her life was only made sweeter in 1851 when the couple welcomed their first child, Albert, into the world. And for a few years, things seemed golden. But then in 1857, everything changed. That September, 36-year-old William Patton died suddenly, shattering Nancy's picture-perfect life. The 20-something was now a widowed single mother with no career prospects of her own. Not only was she grieving her husband, she stood to lose her status, her home, and her financial security. As extreme as that sounds, it's a situation that many women find themselves in, even now, because men tend to die a lot younger than women. University of Michigan economist Joanne Shu attributes this phenomenon to the fact that on average, women have lower financial literacy than men. This is due to a host of factors, like stagnant gender norms and an unequal division of household labor. However, according to Shu, that all starts to shift as widowhood becomes more imminent. Basically, it's a sink-or-swim moment for widows. You either fall into poverty or rise up and take control of your finances. Fortunately, Nancy did the latter. Following the death of her husband, she took a closer look at her checkbooks and became a sort of financial savant. It certainly helped that Patton had set her up for success. He left her a good chunk of change, as well as the deeds to two properties, the house which they lived in and another that she could rent out for about $200 a year. It was a way to earn some passive income, but it wasn't enough to cover all her expenses. Of course, Nancy always had the option to work. As a 19th century woman, she could have gotten a job as a laundress or a domestic servant, but that would mean losing her place on the respectability scale, and she wasn't about to do that. So she had to get a little creative. With the additional income, along with the lump sum she received, 
Nancy began loaning out money to friends in return for high-interest repayments. I know that probably sounds weird, but back then, giving out personal loans was totally normal. The federal government was still struggling to set up the nation's banking system, so it was actually safer to do business with friends than a privately operated bank. What do I mean by that? Well, do you know that scene from It's a Wonderful Life where the whole town is running to the bank, demanding their money back? Historically, in times of financial crises, it wasn't unheard of for banks to deny those kinds of requests. So in a way, leaving your money in their safe was just as much of a gamble as, say, playing the slot machine. In any case, word quickly spread in Indianapolis that if you needed a loan, Nancy was the woman to see. And pretty soon, the single mother was not only back in the black, she was back in the limelight. And she was determined to stay there. Up next, Nancy plays the confidence game. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Next on our series, a four-part deep dive into the religious movement known as the Moonies. Sushi, mass weddings, political coups. Discover the many business ventures, beliefs, and scandals of this headline-making sect. This is one special you do not want to miss. You can also catch up on hundreds of classic episodes and new ones each week by following Cults free on Spotify. Find out what turns a natural-born leader into a vessel for wreaking havoc. Enjoy a new episode of Cults every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By the mid-19th century, Nancy Clem was on everyone's radar. When it came to getting a private loan in Indianapolis, she was the woman to see. At the time, it was a rarity for a woman to be so financially savvy, so naturally, people couldn't stop talking about her. They also couldn't stop chasing after her. Thanks to her prim and proper image, the 20-something had a string of suitors pining after her. But as far as I can tell, she took her time looking for her next Mr. Right. Until finally, in 1859, after about two years of widowhood, she found him. Like Nancy, 29-year-old Frank Clem was a well-respected member of Indianapolis society. He attended church, abstained from alcohol, and owned a local grocery store. Since there weren't many other shops at this time, that meant Frank made a fairly good income. Despite this, he never flaunted his wealth. In fact, when it came to his finances, he ran a tight ship. Perhaps that explains why, before the two officially tied the knot, Nancy made him sign a prenup. In it, she demanded she retain the rights to both her properties from her first marriage, as well as complete control over all her business affairs. And back then, this was a huge deal. The Married Women's Property Acts had just been passed in Indiana a few years earlier, and it offered women of means a much-needed safety net. Before that, anything they owned or earned would go straight to their husbands. 
Of course, Nancy wasn't going to let anyone mess with her money, and the prenup made sure of that. Fortunately, Frank didn't put up much of a fight. Given that he was a frugal man, it made a lot of sense. If he agreed to keep their finances separate, then he wouldn't be on the line for providing for Nancy or her son. It was a win for both of them. Besides, Frank had to have admired her work ethic. Even though she could have coasted off his income, she chose to grind it out, and during the next few years, she continued her hustle, renting out her second property, as well as loaning out large sums of money for profit. And for that, not only did her standing in the community grow, she became one of the city's greatest success stories. But she wasn't the only one moving on up in the world. And here's where we'll meet some important new players in Nancy's story. During the 1860s and 70s, Indianapolis saw rapid growth. Factories and mills sprouted up across the landscape, often flanked by miles and miles of railway tracks. Thanks to these developments, thousands moved to the emerging metropolis, hungry for their share of what the Gilded Age had to offer. But you know what they say, all that glitters is not gold. Best friends Jacob Young and William Abrams learned that lesson the hard way. The two 20-somethings made the move to Indianapolis in 1865, but unlike Nancy's smooth transition into middle-class respectability, the men had a more difficult time finding their footing. Jacob got a job at a hardware store, working as a delivery man and eventually a clerk. Meanwhile, William put his hands to use as a journeyman carpenter, working under a master contractor. But while the work was honest, the two were barely scraping by. As they struggled to provide for their families, they leaned on each other for support. Until, finally, in the summer of 1867, Jacob and William decided to shake things up. They quit their jobs and started their own enterprise. They began as street brokers, people who, according to historian and author Wendy Gamber, trafficked in stocks, mortgages, and promissory notes without undertaking the burden of keeping a brick-and-mortar establishment. Basically, they gave out loans and took on debts in return for high-interest payments, pretty much just like Nancy, which again was fairly standard for the time. But at some point, the duo changed the name. They went from being the creditors to the borrowers. Every so often, William and Jacob went through their contacts, asking their friends to loan them large sums of money. In return, they agreed to pay them back plus interest. And I'm not talking about a wimpy 2 or 3%. No, they promised their lenders upwards of 10 to 25% on top of what they borrowed. Unfortunately, we can't say for certain how the men ever expected to make up that difference. The specifics of their plan have never come to light. However, at some point, it seems the two realized they didn't even have to. Whenever the time came to pay back a loan, they simply took the money from the most recent loans they'd received. Back then, they called it a confidence game. Today, we'd call it a Ponzi scheme. And there was no better time to run one than the post-antebellum. According to Maria Konnikova, that's because periods of social and political uncertainty present con artists with an abundance of opportunities, as that's when people are more likely to rely on emotions over logic. Given that the Civil War had just come to an end, America was a country filled with uncertainty. As communities rebuilt, con artists took advantage of this turbulent time. William and Jacob were doing just that. The two gained their victims' trust by promising a tantalizing return on their investments. 
And for a period of time, they actually made good on their word. They took those initial loans and turned a profit for both the lenders as well as themselves. Or at least, that's what it looked like from the outside. After what felt like no time, the two appeared to be rolling in money. And boy, did they know how to blow through it. Before the year was up, both men bought themselves beautiful houses in the same part of town as Nancy. They also got themselves a horse and buggy, which would have been like someone buying themselves a flashy car today. And they took on a domestic servant. That last part was a pretty big deal because it signaled to the rest of the world that they were rich enough to employ help. And that meant they were now official members of the middle class. The sudden move up the social ladder might explain why the two felt the need to celebrate, because at some point, they also started throwing lavish parties. And this is how they connected with Nancy Clem, or should I say, reconnected. William knew the 30-something from back when they'd lived in Pike Township, so when it was time to ring in the new year in 1868, he made sure he was on the guest list. Of course, she wasn't the only hometown transplant among the guests. Jacob Young and his wife Jane were there too. But Nancy claimed she'd never crossed paths with the young couple before that night. And yet, it was almost as if the trio had known each other since birth. At the party, Nancy, Jacob, and Jane all gravitated towards one another. So much so that at some point, Jane pulled Nancy aside and said that her husband could make her a ton of money. Of course, this is all according to Nancy, so you might want to take these details with a grain of salt. But after that initial conversation, Jacob and William reportedly pulled her aside and attempted to bring her into the fold. As far as we can tell, Nancy didn't need much convincing. She was all about money. And by the spring of 1868, it appears she was a full-fledged member of their operation. I'm going to stop and point out that this was a huge turning point for Nancy. She went from neighborhood lender to someone committing outright cons, though exactly what they were doing isn't clear. Of course, that was all part of the scheme. It was important to keep the particulars of their business under wraps. Not only that, the trio didn't want their marks to know that they were working as a team. That might make people more suspicious. So they tried to keep their alliance a secret. Nancy had her own reasons to conceal her role. For starters, she didn't want her husband to know what she was up to. While Frank had signed off on Nancy managing her own business affairs, it seems she worried that he'd find the entire enterprise distasteful and force her to give it up. Second, she was acutely aware that both William and Jacob were nouveau riche. William appeared to be blowing through his money with abandon, and Jacob had a tacky tendency to flaunt his wealth, wandering about town with wads of cash in his hand. Nancy certainly wouldn't want to be associated with that kind of behavior, at least not in public. As far as I can tell, neither man was offended by this. That's likely because she was the one bringing in the big bucks. She had a way of putting people at ease and making them want to give her their money. Over the next few months, she convinced her dressmaker to loan them her entire life savings. She also talked her family physician, Dr. William Dusen, into loaning her over $20,000. Back then, that was more than a person's yearly wages and enough to buy acres and acres of land. 
So yeah, it was a lot of money. And Dr. Dusen wasn't stupid. He asked the same questions that you and I might ask. Like, what exactly was Nancy going to do with the loan? And how was it going to magically accrue interest? To which Nancy explained that she was, quote, engaged in business transactions with a body of responsible gentlemen by which she made large profits. Vague, I know, but it's possible that Nancy was telling the truth. Again, because the inner workings of their operation were never uncovered, the trio could have been doing anything with that money. Over the years, people have thrown around a lot of theories. Some speculated that Nancy, William, and Jacob were working for a larger network of politically corrupt men. There were also whispers that the trio may have been laundering money for local gangs. But as many of us know, the simplest answer is often the most likely. As such, it seems more plausible that the trio were just working amongst themselves, cycling through each other's money, and every month they'd come together in secret and shuffle around their funds. I can't tell you how much money Nancy or her associates were actually making, but what I do know is that between the spring and fall of 1868, Nancy hired a domestic servant. She was also able to pay for her son's college tuition, likely without any help from her husband. And for a moment in time, Nancy appeared to be living the dream. But the game she was playing wasn't sustainable. And pretty soon, someone was going to pay big time. Coming up, we delve deep into the Cold Spring tragedy. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Now back to the story. Now that you've got an idea about the shape of Nancy Clem's life, I want to tell you a story. This is the tale of the infamous Cold Spring tragedy, and I promise it's all going to make sense soon enough. I say that because what happened at Cold Spring is, for lack of a better word, complicated. There are twists and turns, betrayals, and bloodshed, and a whole mess of lies. Because of this, there's a lot of mystery surrounding what actually happened there— Of course, I've got my guesses, but we'll get into that a little later. For now, we'll start with Jacob Young's side of things and dive into a crime that shocked Indianapolis. By the fall of 1868, things were falling apart with our trio of con artists. Despite the boost in income and the men's rise to middle-class respectability, there were no real winners in the confidence game. So much so that 29-year-old Jacob was ready to pull the plug on the entire operation. That summer, he told Nancy and William Abrams that he was getting out of the game. He was swapping his life in the city for a simpler one back in Pike Township. He'd made arrangements to purchase 150 acres of farmland for a discounted price of $15,000. But to buy the property, he had to clear the books and withdraw whatever he had in his savings. So on September 11th, he went to the bank and cashed out just over $7,000 from his account. We know this because of his habit of flaunting his money all around town. Several locals saw him carrying around a fat roll of cash that day. 
The following morning, he met with 35-year-old Nancy to square away their debts. More specifically, it appears he went to collect what was owed him. As far as we can tell, Nancy scrambled together what money she could and begrudgingly handed it over. After that, Jacob was one step closer to securing the Pike property and turning his life around. It was certainly a moment to celebrate. After a quick meal at home, Jacob and his 28-year-old wife, Jane, decided to take an afternoon buggy ride to enjoy the rest of the day. Jane was so excited about the outing that while Jacob prepared their horse and buggy, she changed into a new outfit, putting on a brown gingham dress over a full crinoline skirt. Then she skipped outside and the two headed about five miles northwest to Cold Spring, a popular destination on the banks of the White River. Around 2 p.m., they arrived at Cold Spring and hitched up their horse and buggy. Then the two strolled along the bluff, looking at the river below them. Eventually, they made their way down to the sandbar, where the sun was still beaming down on them. Jacob got so hot, he took off his coat and hung it on a willow branch before scavenging the shoreline for seashells. Meanwhile, Erie Locke and his family were fishing just around the bend. It was around 4 o'clock when his kids, 13-year-old Millie and 11-year-old Seymour, grew restless and went for a swim. They splashed their way down the river until they came across a startling sight. It was Jacob and Jane Young, and from where the kids were, it looked like they were enjoying an afternoon tryst. Not that the kids stuck around to get a good look. Millie and Seymour figured it was best to give the couple some privacy and made their way back upstream to their father. Soon after that, the family packed up and headed back home to Indianapolis. But we're going to stay in Cold Spring because that's where Robert Bowman was early the next morning when he stumbled upon the same site as Millie and Seymour, only he was close enough to see that Jacob and Jane weren't wrapped in a lover's embrace. They were dead. Jacob had been shot in the head and a shotgun lay beside him. Jane had also been shot in the face. But unlike Jacob, her body was burned to a crisp. It was a gruesome way to die, but despite all the carnage, it was difficult for investigators to jump to the conclusion of murder. Sure, there were rumors that Jacob may have had some questionable business dealings, but most of Indianapolis saw the two as upstanding, honest citizens, so it didn't make sense that anyone would want them dead. So investigators initially believed they were dealing with a tragic case of murder-suicide. They thought that due to some unknown marital trouble, Jacob shot and killed Jane, then turned the gun on himself. Today, that type of crime is called Intimate Partner Homicide, or IPH. The ugly truth is that IPH is a common crime against women. In fact, according to a 2017 CDC report, over half of the killings of American women are related to intimate partner violence. Unfortunately, the research behind why this phenomenon happens is slim. But according to sociologist Margaret Zahn, there are three indicators that may increase the likelihood of IPH. First is a woman's history as a victim of violence. The more they were exposed to severe violence in the past, the more likely she may fall victim to IPH. Second is the perpetrator's own history of substance abuse problems. Male IPH perpetrators are more likely to drink and use drugs on the regular. And third is the overall toxicity in both the victim and perpetrator's daily life. 
In general, Zahn found that drug use, serious alcohol abuse, and gun possession were highly associated with the murder of women by their intimate partners. So a proclivity for substance abuse and a history of violence. Did this describe Jacob and Jane Young's relationship? Investigators were determined to figure that out. They spoke with two people who saw them regularly, the couple's domestic servant and Jacob's live-in niece. According to both, Jacob lived a sober life. He didn't drink or take any drugs. And though he was known to carry around a holster, he mostly used it to hold his rolls of cash. What's more, Jacob loved his wife. He doted on Jane, and there was no history of domestic abuse to speak of. So the whole theory of a jealous husband carrying out a murder-suicide was dead on arrival. Then came the autopsy. The coroner ruled that Jane's body had burned so badly because of her on-trend outfit. When she was shot, it seems the gunpowder that was released ignited a spark on her highly flammable crinoline skirt. So that accounted for one mystery. But there was still plenty to puzzle over, because the wound left by the bullet lodged in Jane's temple was noticeably different from the wounds found on her husband. That meant she'd probably been shot with a smaller pistol instead of the large shotgun that was found at the scene. With this revelation, authorities threw the idea of IPH right out the window. It made no sense that Jacob would kill his wife with a pistol, get rid of the gun, then shoot himself in the head with another weapon. No, the truth was becoming clearer now. What they had on their hands was a double homicide. So investigators rolled up their sleeves and went back to the crime scene. But at this point, they weren't the only ones there. News of the grisly murder had spread like wildfire, and everyone was curious to see the Cold Spring tragedy for themselves. Unfortunately for investigators, this meant that a lot of the crime scene was contaminated. Despite this, authorities painstakingly scoured the area. And while they didn't recover the pistol that killed Jane, they did find a distinctive set of footprints that went from Jacob's remains over to his coat that he'd hung on a tree branch. To authorities, it looked as though whoever made the tracks was the one to shoot and kill the youngs. They also surmised that after doing the deed, the perpetrator likely ran to Jacob's coat so as to pocket the rolls of cash he'd flashed around before his death. Of course, this was all just speculative, but it didn't matter. The investigation was finally heating up and they went full steam ahead with their lead. Authorities measured the footprints and determined that it had been made by a woman with a size three shoe. All they needed to do now was find their Cinderella. And where was Nancy in all of this? Well, we'll get to that next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Nancy's story. We'll take a closer look at the Cold Spring tragedy and explore how Nancy leveraged her public persona to con victims for years on end. For more information on Nancy Clem, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Notorious Mrs. Clem, Murder and Money in the Gilded Age by Wendy Gamber, and The Cold Spring Tragedy, Trial and Conviction, as published by A.C. Roach, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Jane O., edited by Joel Callen, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Kitovich. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 